Welcome to another episode of Ready Teacher One. I'm Adam Mangana. And I'm Ryan McLaughlin. And our guest tonight is someone that I am proud to call both a friend and someone I deeply admire. He's the founder of To Move Mountains, which is an organization doing education work in the Nuba Mountains of Sudan. Uh, Ryan Boyette, welcome to the show. We are super excited to have you here and to learn more about the work you're doing. Thank you, Adam and Ryan. I'm, uh, I'm happy to be here. I really appreciate it. You know, Ryan, Ryan, would you start by just telling our listeners a little bit about To Move Mountains? Just give us the uh, the origin story, if you will. Sure. Um, so I believe, it, yeah, it was in 2003. I just graduated university and uh, I read an article about a war zone in Sudan. And this was like decades long and hundreds of thousands of people displaced and and uh, many people killed in this war that the Sudan government was attacking people. And I was kind of frustrated and angry that as a college graduate, why was I not, uh, why did I not know about it? It was kind of crazy to me. So long story short, um, I joined an international aid organization and I traveled to the Nuba Mountains. Uh, I landed there. I uh, left all kind of ideas of doing other work. I had plans to actually be an FBI or U.S. Customs agent, and I was kind of going in that route. And um, I started doing humanitarian aid work. And I didn't really know much about the world at the time. And uh, but we were living, you know, in the Nuba Mountains, where there's no running water, no electricity, no roads, no cell phone network. It has been landlocked. Um, not only with access to the outside world, but just because there's been war there for, for decades. Um, it was like stepping back in time. But the people were so resilient and strong and committed. Um, and so while I was there, it was during a window of peace. And during that window of peace, uh, I did tons of different humanitarian type jobs. But the thing I always saw and always came back to was education. Um, and that kind of stuck in my mind that that's what people were, that's what they desired. That's what they, um, I could see progress um, in their communities. Someone who had an education had the ability to do so much, so much potential. Um, and then war broke out in 2011. And uh, the organization I was working with um, evacuated. And I stayed with my wife, who is from the Nuba Mountains. And we decided it would be hypocritical of us. Um, we were in a faith-based organization, and I felt as a result of my faith, it would, it would not be, uh, I didn't think it was fair that I could get on a plane and just step out and leave um, when that had been my home at that point for eight years. And so for the next uh, seven years after that, I, I ran a media organization called Nuba Reports, and we also supported some Arabic media stations, and we reported on the, uh, the war crimes. Um, the daily bombardment of villages and homes. Um, as a result, my house was, uh, my house was targeted and uh, there was bombs dropped on, on our house in 2012. Uh, thank God we were, my wife and I were, were protected. Um, both our children were born in the war zone at our house. Um, my wife is really tough. Um, she is and, for sure. <laughs> and then, so after uh, about seven years of doing the media work, um, the, the fighting kind of died down and it has died down for the past about three or four years. And even though it's still a war zone, um, there hasn't been much active fighting, which is very good. And they're, we're hoping for a peace deal, but we thought it would be a good opportunity to kind of pivot. And it's always been in my heart, my mind and my wife's heart and mind to kind of support education, but support it in a way that I would say is very unusual in the humanitarian world. 
most of the time, especially in areas of conflicts, it's just kind of like parachuting in. We have the answers. Here's a curriculum you need. And it's all about economic development, wherein people living in areas of conflict, especially oppressed by their government, it is a very different situation. Um, so I really think uh, the education system that we want to work with the Nuba people will be very different. And that's why I started to move mountains. Uh, we started in 2018 officially, but we were doing work uh, before that time as well. Incredible. Sorry, was that a long, I know that was a long <laughs> story and it's hard to give context without some of that background. But, but it's not a long story because it's so fascinating, so riveting, Ryan, and, and we're thrilled for you to be able to share some of that with our audience. Um, I've had the privilege of going to Sudan with you, and we were at a curriculum conference in January where I got to see some of those differences lived out that you're, you're talking about. Tell us a little bit about, about how you accomplished that goal of not just coming in with all of the answers as the outside expert, but actually incorporate the voices of the people of NUBA in the design and implementation of the curriculum? Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it was, <laughs> I would say it's a lot of uh, trial and mistake <laughs> on my side. So being sure. in the humanitarian world and doing so many projects that involve, some of them involve even educational aspects to them, but I just saw them not working. Um, because it, we were, the ideas that came in were so separated from the reality of the people on the ground. And most you know, organizations are sitting in very nice compounds with air conditioner and driving around in cars, which is very different than the reality of the, the average person in the Nuba Mountains and many other places that these organizations work. So really, we see the Nuba people as the experts of what they want. Um, you know, instead of us telling them, this is what you want, um, we, we want to hear from them uh, about what's important, what are the desires for their education. You know, you mentioned the education conference, and, and uh, it was incredible. There's 56 tribes in Nuba, and about 46 were represented. And if you understand the terrain, people rode on motorbikes on dirt roads, and some of the women even carried their small babies with them on that trip on a two-day journey to come to an education conference. Um, to talk about curriculum and they were pumped. They were singing and dancing and, and uh, Ryan, you saw it when you were there. And I remember you saying, this is the awesomest curriculum conference <laughs> I've ever been to. Hands um, down, not even close. <laughs> yeah. And they, um, I think the, it was a great success because everyone could hear everyone else's voice. And we grouped people into parents, teachers, students, community leaders, women's group, youth group. And we asked them these three main questions, which were, what do you want your students to be like? What do you want them to know? And what do you want them to be able to do at the end of uh, primary school? And when they came back, they came back with some great vision and goals. And that kind of has been the, has set the, the process now for everything that we do ahead. Ryan, part of what you've shared uh, is is so fascinating. It's It's interesting. I'm reminded of a a quote from one of our founding fathers, John Adams, who says, I study war and politics so that my son can study business. My hope is that my son studies business so that his son can study art and philosophy. And I'm curious, um, as you think about this period of peace and as you look forward, um, what are the things that, that you think, what are the opportunities that you see for um, the current youth of Nuba and, and, and what are the things that, that they're most excited about from a position of agency when you talk about education and what they're looking to learn? Yeah, I think, um, 
you know, Adam, the, the quote that you just said reminded me, I mean, there's many speeches that mimic almost th those exact words. I have been to, you know, a fifth grade graduation where the parents, I mean, the parents are, some of them are rebel soldiers that have been fighting their government for their whole lives for their freedom. And so that their kids can get the education. I've seen them come up and they stand up there, some of them maimed from bullets or, and they stand up there and talk about, um, I did this so that you can get an education. And that's where the value is. The value in, in a group of people that have been oppressed is incredibly important for them to get an education. I mean, to them, it's very important. And I think this is where we fail because most of the time we see the thing we see as foreigners when we come into these situations automatically is poverty. You know, we're, we're so consumed with poverty issues because it's so different than how we live. But in Nuba, I think people are rich just because they live in houses of grass and, and, and mud to me doesn't mean that they're, they're impoverished. They have great farms. They, they uh, have no debt. They live freely. They farm. And while it's a hard life and, and hopefully education can make that better for them. Um, the first, some of the first things they mentioned, I don't, Ryan, maybe you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think maybe only one person mentioned economic development. Every, I don't even remember that one person to be honest with you, Ryan. And, and mostly everyone's talking about their rights and their, we want to know what our rights are. We want to know what our freedom is. When you go into villages, when I was a journalist and I'm, and I'm talking to people displaced whose homes were just burned down. And this is before I did education work. So it wasn't like they're seeing me as someone who does education work, just telling me what I want to hear. I would, I have interview after interview. What do you, what do you want? Um, or, or what help do you need? And they say, we need education. Yeah. I mean, this is the place people have just out their villages burned down. Okay, why do you need education? You need food. And they, they've been living in war for decades. So they realize that education, or they see a, a link between education and freedom. Yes. Political and social freedoms, and, and, and maybe economic, but it, that comes after you have your political and social freedoms. I'm reminded, and I'm going to do a, a terrible job of paraphrasing what was said, but uh, one of the older gentlemen that was at the conference got up and said, you know, if, if this freedom that we've won, this hard-fought freedom that we've won is going to last, it's going to have to be a freedom in the minds of our children. And uh, it was such a powerful thing to say in the context that we were in, because we had heard so much about how oppressive the curriculum had been in the past that had been imposed on the people of Nuba. So I'm wondering if you could give a little bit of context and a little bit of color around, uh, you know, what sort of education system are the people of Nuba trying to replace? Hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, if you think of the history of education in Sudan, and we kind of talked about this at the conference is, okay, who, who was in power when kind of schools were starting to be made and education was taking place? Now we're talking like formal education as we know it in the West, right? Like there's a lot of education going on before this, but the British colonial rule. So they had British colonial schools and, and, and they were teaching um, kind of in a colonial way that they know best. And, and they're coming in to tell, um, you know, if you read some of the, the books, the anthropological books, of Nuba and just the way they, they saw the Nuba people almost like savages. And so just imagine the, how they're stepping into wanting to educate these people, right? And, and so you can only imagine what that education system looked like. Then after that, it was the Arab rule, um, which is the northern, the, the northern um, part of Sudan. 
um, there was kind of uh, an Islamist rule and they started creating an education system that was very uh, religious based. So people were forced to change their name, for example, like in the school, like people of Nuba have traditional names like um, uh, Kuti and Kalo and these kind of traditional names that they have. Um, but they would come and say, these are not honorable names in the school and you have to change your name to Muhammad or Ahmed, Omar, uh, Kamis, like all of these more Arabic sounding names. And so immediately it was a breakdown of identity. And that is what the education was really trying to get at. I would say from the British colonial rule up until the, the government um, trying to just break down the identity of, of the Nuba people as something bad. Um, and then more recently, when the rebels kind of took over, they took on an East African curriculum because they said this other curriculum is oppressive. We want to take an East African curriculum where it, again, it was rooted in colonial, a colonial education system. Um, and it's very much uh, about those regions. It has really little to do with the Nuba Mountains. Um, you know, <laughs> a lot of people, as I realize that I'm coming back here after 15 years back to the U.S., and a lot of people really don't know where Sudan is. So maybe they would just assume that the education system in Kenya and Sudan could work together. But really, it's quite different. I seem to remember that... Uh one of the things that came up at the conference was that the Kenyan exams require a pretty in-depth knowledge of Swahili, which of course is a language that's not spoken anywhere in Sudan, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and not only Swahili, but it also requires you to know the rivers and lakes and geography of Kenya and the political structure of their government. And, um, and so children in Nuba can tell you some of that now, but they don't know about their own history or the or the mountain, you know, just an hour away from them or, you know, so it's, it's, uh, yeah, to me, it's, it served a purpose because it was in a conflict time. Um, but now it's a time to kind of uh, regrow and rethink about this. Yeah. You know, Ryan, I think you have a unique perspective that you might be able to offer some of our listeners. We are, you know, we, we, we are at the core, a, a, a podcast that is focused on ed tech, but this gives us a chance to, to, to really reflect in terms of the, the evolution of technology. And so um, going back to the origins, we were talking about colonial rule and the origins of the West. Um, you know, Socrates was skeptical of books. He thought men would lose their memories and, and they would no longer be great orators. What do you know, what have you learned about a culture in which the oral tradition is the way that, that we pass on, the, you know, the most um, dynamic thinkers of, of a, a particular group. And so, so what, what are the, what are the things that we've lost since we've invented books that, that uh, maybe learning from the people in the Nuba mountain around the oral tradition could, could, could uh, help us to glean? Well, the, the Nuba people are definitely come from an oral culture, um, an oral society. Um, everything is based around certain seasons and what's around them songs that they sing at nighttime are always based on events. You know, um, the songs aren't necessarily meant to feel good or to feel sad. A lot of times the songs are, you know, now that the war is here, some of them are kind of like war fighting songs, but they all have a story. So, uh, you know, in oral cultures, they'll, they'll sing about an event that took place in the village or that took place in all of Nuba. So it's a way of remembering history. 
Um, you'll have uh, grandmothers sing songs that the children will be like, oh, what was that song about? Like, why did you make that song? And then it's an opportunity for the grandmothers to say, well, this is what happened at that time. Um, and, and then people will be named things. Uh, and this is common in many oral cultures is, is like the first time a vehicle came into someone's, I know somebody named, um, basically in Arabic, their name is car. And it was because it was the first time a car came into the village and a child was born and they named the child car because it was um, kind of a new event in the village. And I think that really plays into how education worked, you know, before British colonial rule is that it was all through story. It was all through practice. It was through um, uh, seeing and imitating your, your parents or community leaders. It's really, um, you know, we have all these great names like project-based learning and uh, restorative practices and all this stuff, but really they were doing it, right? You know, um, I, I recently learned about like kind of restorative practices type stuff, but I realized they knew where they've been doing this for centuries, you know? Um, but I will say something about the technology where I think there has to be a balance, right? Um, I do believe, you know, one thing that kept coming up at the conference is an issue of technology. The people wanted to understand more modern technology. And I feel like they feel that they have been left behind because of the conflict. They have not been able to practice this um, or be able to use some technology. So I feel like it is, um, people are very eager. I think there's a lot of opportunity. It's just very hard because of the little infrastructure. But there is opportunity because of, you know, things like satellite internet is starting to become a lot cheaper. And so there's a lot more access to internet. Um, I was actually just looking up Elon Musk. Uh, I think Ryan even told me about it at one point. Starlink. Yeah, Starlink. And like, I can just imagine if, if there's, people are able to get internet through that um, or phone networks open up again. That, I would say that was one of the biggest developments I'd seen in 15 years. There was one year before the war started, cell phone networks went up and suddenly business was booming. People could talk to each other instead of traveling for miles or sending a letter. And, and it really changed it. You know, some things that changed the society that maybe some people there would have said it was bad. Um, but in other ways it helped a lot. Um, so I think that there's a lot of room for, uh, use of technology and education in Nuba. It just has to be thought out. Um, in some ways, sustainability in technology, uh, I think is actually more appropriate in Africa. There is so much kind of off the grid solar wind power that's being used on private levels and within the education field that I think could be, uh, that is even used much more than, than here in the US, you know? That's fascinating. Yeah, what's really interesting too is you know I think about I think you know, when we when we think about what are the vehicles that that transform an oral uh, culture to a written culture, and I think about you know one of the first technologies in in Egypt or one of the first technologies in in ancient Greece, of course, was the grammar book where we organized our language. We're now it's, it, it's interesting, right? We're now in a place where the internet has decentralized our language. We can send our language at the speed of light for free. Yep. And so the next emerging technology that seems to be an opportunity for the folks in, in Nuba, and it's, it's counterintuitive because I think you said, you know, these folks are already wealthy, but, but, but the blockchain may allow us to, you know, send our monetary energy around for free and so 
you know, if you think about the, the opportunity for folks to hear your story, Ryan, to be inspired by the work that your family, your wife, her extended family has done to empower uh, the folks in the Nuba Mountain regions, how do, uh, how do folks who have a heart to uh, support to move mountains and want to see uh, the vision of the Nuba Mountain people taking agency of their own education, their own freedom, uh, organizing their own uh, empowerment. What are ways in which this EdTech family that we've developed might be able to, uh, to either support through time, talent, or treasure? Folks who want to help in terms of giving money, folks who want to spend their time, or folks who want to take their educational technology domain expertise and mm -hmm. offer that uh, to the people of the Nuba Mountain regions. How would you uh, help us to, to organize that uh, for on, on behalf of Tamu Mountains. Yeah, I think um, there's uh, talking big picture now, and then I'll narrow it down. Um, I think there are, like you mentioned, blockchain and stuff, and that's something I've been thinking about. But imagine like in our schools at some of the higher levels talking about like the market and people like there's so many middlemen. All right, let me give you an example. Like Within Nuba, there's a high, tons of hibiscus. There's also a lot of gum Arabic. And so if, if people have that and they harvest it, normally what they do is they sell it to a middleman. And then again, they sell it to a middleman where, and it's being, you know, gum Arabic is used in Coca-Cola. Hibiscus tea is kind of all over the US now. You can kind of get it. Well, that goes through Egypt. Most that comes through Egypt is from Sudan. So the people are getting it at a very low rate. So if it's privatized and then, and we teach about these kind of markets and access to these markets and blockchain allows access to those markets. I really feel that this is something that could uh, support the people of Nuba and really um, bring opportunity to them on the ground instead of so many middlemen. Um, and they haven't had that opportunity because they've been so blocked off for so many years. Um, but I think all of this, and, and, and I'll go back to kind of what I said that it needs appropriate steps. And so that is why I think what we're doing is very long-term thinking and educating students at a young age and getting them to open their eyes and, and their minds to new ideas and let them decide, is this a new idea that is helpful to my life or not? And, and deciding if that's in the education system or not. And so uh, I believe starting at, at a young age to, to get students to think about this uh, early on is extremely important. Otherwise, to me, it'll be another failed project. You know, I could think of uh, several, but one example is bringing in a piece of technology, which was a welding machine. And welding machines are very helpful in the Nuba Mountains. And we did a training on it and we trained adults, but <clears throat> the management of them, they almost all of them failed. There's a lot of guys who know how to weld now. But my, my, my point is that having this education system that is not only teaching literacy and numeracy and, and about the history, but it's teaching students to really have that growth mindset as they enter into this, this kind of new world that they're kind of, this generation is going to kind of move into with the changes in the world, um, I think is really important. For us, uh, you know, when we talk to people about curriculum, unless they're educators, they're like, uh, they kind of get lost. You know, it's kind of this term to people that don't know about education. Um, like, okay, great. Yeah, that's great. That's a curriculum where, you know, if I talk about it, I'm fired up. And so it's hard for us to raise money for that. Um, so, I mean, if people do want to support to move mountains, 
Um, they can go to our website at uh, tomovemountains.org. That's T-O, tomovemountains.org. And that's a, that's a great way. And they can sign up to be a monthly donor or one-time donation there. Um, and if they would like to, to talk about, or if they would like to have conversations with us about their expertise, we are always looking for people who have interest uh, in different work and subjects. And, and I would be really interested to dig into like the technology aspect of things um, and how to make things accessible to uh, students at NUVA. So they're always welcome to shoot an email to, to me. Um, you could also shoot an email to Ryan because he, he is involved in our work as well. And so I think uh, that would be that would be extremely helpful if people would do that. Absolutely. Ryan, you, you bring a great point. It's something that we talk about a lot on this podcast, which is that it's about putting technology at the surface of pedagogy rather than pedagogy at the surface of technology. And I think that that's something that um, can be difficult to see the differences in, in practice, but it's so important and so critical and, and something that uh, teachers have to be trained in, right? Um, and I want to switch gears a, a little bit there with that segue because another important aspect of the work that To Move Mountains is doing is teacher training, which is a, a huge need in the region, right? Um, I would love for you to just give us a little bit of a, an insight into the teacher training program that To Move Mountains has and uh, the goals, the visions there, and what we've been able to accomplish so far. Sure. Um, yeah, so in 2015 and 16, we chose uh, uh, 12 in 2015 and 13 students in 2016, and we sent them to high school outside of the war zone. Um, most of the students were in their late teens, early 20s at the time because of the war. They had to stop, start, stop, start. Um, and so once they finished high school, they were then entered into our um, To Move Mountains Teacher Training Academy. And it's a three-year program in which the first year and a half is about like good general teaching practice. And the second year and a half would be um, subject specific. So the first cohort of 12 um, are, have now finished about a year and a half and they're, they're back in the Nuba Mountains. It was an awesome trip. We, we took them back to Nuba from Uganda. First time in six years they had seen their family, even talked to their families. And they left their families in a war zone. So it was like this emotional moment super happy everyone's crying and it was this <clears throat> this amazing thing so they're coming from an area with running water in uganda electricity cell phones and coming to nuba where all that has been finished and so that was exciting to to, to see them back with their families um, so they're teaching a practicum right now and they are going to be a part a very major part of contextualizing the cur curriculum so as we have our staff we're sitting down with them as they're getting the training Parallel to that, they're, um, they're digging into the new curriculum and, and they're, they're giving advice and ideas and, and appropriate ways and culturally appropriate ways of doing some of these lessons in, in the Nuba Mountains. Um, so they are going to be the creators of the curriculum, uh, the teachers that we're training, and they will be the teachers in the first school that we create. Hopefully, uh, we'll start building in about uh, six months, um, at least starting some sort of construction. So they will finish, the curriculum will be finished, the school will be finished. And we'll start. Ryan, uh, you know, so many of the listeners here have been <clears throat> socialized and educated in the context of the West and Western civilization. So familiar with, you know, at, at the root of, of the educational purpose, right, teaching virtue or teaching civic virtue, right, being part of something bigger, bigger than yourselves. Our folks who have been influenced by Eastern philosophy, 
uh, also can can relate to this idea of being part of something bigger than 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 yourself. Um, ancient African tradition is so rich around community. I'm curious if someone was trying to understand, and virtue is not the right word, but if someone was to understand the greater purpose of education, what is education in the Nuba Mountains, right? And somebody wanted to, you, you were translating that purpose to a Westerner or to someone from the East who, who thinks in terms of civic virtue. How would you describe the purpose? What is the, what is the purpose of education in the Nuba Mountains? Um, and, and at its core, is it, is it trying to reach the hearts of the people or the minds? Um, I would say right now it's more pointed toward the hearts. And I think that uh, everyone you talk to in Nuba, they have the saying that the struggle continues and they consider, all of them consider themselves part of the struggle for their freedom, for their um, uh, commitment to their society, to their contribution to the society, to the contribution to what's happening in, in the country. And so they always see themselves like we've interviewed many students, we've interviewed teachers and parents and, and they all say the same thing. Yeah, this is my role for the struggle. And so that's that community that you're talking about. They all feel part of that community and they're all um, seeing that goal together. Um, I would say that a lot of the parents um, who haven't had the opportunity for education and even during their years as when they were children, um, there wasn't much opportunity. So they, it's almost like this um, mystical thing that yes, education equals freedom and they know that and they see that and they want that, um, but they don't know what are their children learning. Um, and, I, and I feel like we're missing a huge part of their great knowledge and building that community and, and, and reaching the goals that they know are there that education can reach. And so drawing them into that conversation and into the learning um, with their children, I think is really important um, to help reach those goals. Um, but yeah, I think, I think they would say education is part of the struggle to reach these, these freedoms that we desire. That's a tremendous answer, Ryan. Um, Adam and I talk a lot on this podcast about virtual reality. And so I would be remiss if I didn't give our listeners the opportunity to hear more about the virtual reality project that you were involved with. Um, I know that it exists. I don't know that I know the story of how it came about or how you became involved with filming a VR film in Africa, but um, give us the scoop there. Sure. Um, before I started to move mountains, as I mentioned, I ran a media organization and toward, we like doing creative projects. So we did a couple, we did a documentary, we've done um, a bunch of different projects, creative pro projects. And one of those was a virtual reality 360 film. Um, and at the time, virtual reality was becoming uh, very exciting and new, um, but the technology hadn't caught up yet. Sure. So we still had that grid of uh, a harness of GoPros. I think it was like eight GoPros maybe, maybe 10. And so it required so much stitching of every single GoPro. And I remember when we'd had, you know, when someone who worked with me, a guy named Trevor, uh, he came with the idea and, and, and someone else that was experienced with this uh, kind of rig. 
and they came in and we'd set it up and we'd have to clap our hands to like sync all of the, the sound on every single GoPro. And we'd have a recorder under it. We'd hit play on all of them and then we'd run away and let it film. And uh, it, it was quite nerve wracking in the Nuba Mountains where it's 120 degrees on average, 115 degrees, I mean. And uh, it can, it heats up the GoPro so you can only film for about five minutes at a time. Um, but there were some cases where we were in the front lines of the conflict and we set it up at, our, at um, the rebels from the Nuba Mountains were fighting the government and they were launching artillery shells at the government. And when the artillery went off, it knocked the, the just the pressure, um, destroyed several speakers on the, uh, on the GoPro and kind of like flattened them out. Um, so we have some of that footage in the film. Uh, we covered, we, we followed four characters and showed their lives. One was a student, a female student, and she talks about the struggle of getting an education as a female in a war zone. Uh, we talked to a rebel soldier and why he was fighting. We talked to a journalist who was uh, wounded, a big piece of shrapnel uh, got buried in his leg and uh, he almost lost his leg. Um, and we talked to a mother who was displaced from her village and was trying to survive with her kids and her child was malnourished. And so it's the story of these four people and, and the, the, the title of the film is called We Who Remain. You can see it on YouTube, We Who Remain. Uh, New York Times published it, Al Jazeera published it, and Arte also published it in Europe. Um, so it was published and it was in a couple film festivals. Um, but please excuse the, you know, it, it was all stitched together. Just remember the technology was a little lower, but uh, it's a pretty compelling film, um, especially for VR. And so our listeners that have, say, an Oculus headset could go onto YouTube 360 and, and watch that right now? Yes, they could watch that. Yeah, it's really, really cool film. That's fantastic. So, so Ryan, for those of uh, for those of us who who really are having a hard time empathizing with the oppressors in this story, the the government, can you give us a little bit of a sense of why the uh, Sudanese government is doing this to the folks in Nuba? For for us who who just maybe be are, are a little naive uh, to what's happening in that part of the world? Sure. So I think um, a few things should be mentioned about that. So there has been, the people were so fed up with what was going on, even in the capital, that they overthrew their dictator a few years ago, um, President Omar al-Bashir. Um, so he, he is out. So it's like, the, it's like this new exciting time in Sudan's history where there's so much potential for peace. And so that I, I do want to say that despite all of these issues that I've mentioned previously in the, in the terrible aspects of the war, there is a lot of hope right now. And that's why this, the work that we're doing is so important right now. But in the past, um, from my perspective, the government was a few people that were trying to maintain power. And their way of maintaining power was um, maintaining the resources and dividing up the different groups. So they did an excellent job of dividing people amongst themselves. And, and they uh, did it all to maintain power and maintain the wealth, maintain the, uh, the resources in the country. Um, there was also religious aspects. There was, um, there's oil in the country, there's gold in the country. And of course those resources are in the areas where the poorest people of the country live and they don't see any of that um, support. Um, so, I would, you know, a lot of people in Nuba would say it was about identity, that 
they always felt as second-class citizens. And this is the same conflict that saw the separation of South Sudan. So when Sudan was one country, the Nuba people fought on the side of South Sudan. But when the country split, the Nuba people were stuck uh, in the north and um, the war continued. Pretty powerful stuff, my friend. I, I, uh, you know, it, it's exciting from a, from a, um, just a, a hope perspective to see that um, not only are the Nuba Mountain people uh, feeling this energy, but the whole country is feeling this excitement and energy. Um, what are some of the things? Because we are an ed tech show, what are some of the technologies? You mentioned blockchain a little bit. What are some of the technologies that you think might have the biggest impact? on young people in Nuba in the next five years? Oh, I really think this, um, the satellite in internet and access and more um, affordability of, of satellite internet will be huge. I mean, like I said, just communication in Nuba, like if you want to set, if you want to get word to someone, you have to like send a letter that might take several days to get there. And then you might go to have a meeting with them and they might not even be home. Um, and you wasted a whole day getting there and a day back. So like, access to markets and and communication i think is going to be huge more in the in the more near ter near term i would say there are kind of some uh, internet i don't know what you would call them they're almost they're actually intranet kind of capsules and basically it's a server that they're they're very simply made they run off a battery you can charge them with a small solar panel and it creates its own wi-fi network in which um, you have access to anything on this. It's almost like a portable cloud. Um, so you hook it in, you turn it on, and there's several companies that have developed this and they work great in schools. And I think that this is something we'll implement soon with our teacher trainers because um, they've learned how to use computers and the internet. And I think we put all the resources on there and they can learn to do research through that as you would on the internet. So it's almost in preparation for um, people having this access in the future. Um, but it allows them to search and look and find things and, and still and be able to use technology to, to, to do research. And I think that's really important. And I think it'll be interesting too, Ryan, to see uh, just how much ingenuity and how much um, drive the young people of Nuba have around some of this stuff. Like, you know, I, I remember being there in January and of course not having any internet access for the entire time we were there. Um, we were communicating home with, what was the name of that device, a Garmin? Is that uh, yep. to, to message back? Um, and yet, nevertheless, I still get WhatsApp messages from Nuba. I don't know where, you know, our friends Michael and Ezekiel find yeah. internet, but uh, even just today, I got a message from Ezekiel uh, updating me on his progress uh, of his studies. And I was like, buddy, where on earth did you find internet? <laughs> um, but there, where there's a will, there's a way, right? And there's okay. definitely a as you mentioned earlier, a desire to get this technology into people's hands. Yeah, that's true. Ryan, I'm, I'm really curious. I am, um, you know, really interested in online school and virtual school. And it seems to me in a, in a model where you don't have parents going off to work in an office or a factory, their home, that you could pump in teachers that were not necessarily geographically connected to Nuba as soon as you get the internet. And so what do you think about the prospect of 
taking some of the best teachers around the world and having them do pro bono instruction for maybe the areas of highest need where, you know, you need a multivariate calculus teacher or you need, uh, you know, a non-Euclidean geometry teacher. Ryan, mm -hmm. shout out to, to Ryan. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so what do you think about um, hacking time and space to give, to import great teaching into Nuba, um, you know, using a, a virtual delivery method? Oh yeah, I think I think that could be very possible if the internet issue gets solved. And like I said, when the cell phone network was there and working, um, it opened up doors like that already when when we were there. And the technology has even changed since that time. You know, that was in 2011, 2010. And so I think um, it would it, it could work very well, especially in like thinking of higher education. Like there's a few secondary schools, high schools, and new and people having the desire to continue on to to university, but not having the ability to do that, whether, whether financially or just physically being able to get to a university, I think that would be extremely helpful. Um, even things like courses on how to do um, a certain skill, I think could be, could be like a skill associated with technology um, would be also very helpful. Like, like, I don't know if uh, like designing websites for organizations that come sure. in or as you were talking about raising support, like if a school was able to learn how to make a website and people could support that school and they can just get funding directly to them. Like, I think that would be, that'd be very, very interesting way of doing things. Um, another piece of technology I didn't mention that I think, um, I think actually Africa is far beyond us in, in the West in this because we already have grids and whatnot, but uh, power. Uh, and electricity. There's so many um, smaller type units coming out in which someone could create power and energy for a home instead of a, a massive grid. Um, it could also be a larger grid, um, but I really think that they're going to be advancing very quickly as far as um, solar and wind power um, and other forms of power as well and, and make that more of a privatized um, thing. I'm sure there are waterfalls there in, in uh, the Nuba Mountains somewhere. There's only water in the rainy season, so a few months out of the year. Otherwise, it's very dry. You have dry riverbeds. Fascinating. But we were thinking, uh, you know, I've even thought, you know, with one of the schools, maybe we do a big project of building a dam, and then we have a little generator that turns when the water goes through. Or now they, like, this is a good example. So they make these little, um, these little generators that can hook between two pipes, it's so like a two inch pipe on this side, a two inch pipe, and there's a little generator. And so if something's gravity fed or you're pumping it, it can create, it creates power as water's flowing through it. The little turbine is spinning and it's not big, it's small, but it could charge cell phones or things like that. Um, I just think there's a lot of opportunity like that, um, that, you know, there's tons of, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of sun in Sudan, so much opportunity for solar and, and things like that as well. Like, oh, th this is another thing. Um, sorry, now, now I'm getting excited. So go for it, man. They have like, uh, you know, they're coming out with electric motorbikes now. Sure. Getting fuel in Nuba is extremely difficult and extremely expensive. You have to bring it in by the barrel and it's just, it's a mess. But if you had like solar, like a solar, what they call a Rakuba, which a Rakuba is just like a shaded shelter. It's like you have stands coming up and you have reeds on top of it to cool it down. But if you took that same model and you had solar panels, and now suddenly people had access to simple electronic or um, uh, motorbikes 
electric motorbikes, then they can just charge those motorbikes instead of having to bring fuel in all the time. Um, I think you're going to see things like that popping up uh, in the next few years. If there's peace, I think these things will come very soon. With peace, you typically find a lot of wealth creation. I'm curious, you know, that's not, that doesn't seem to be the motivation at all, but um, is, is the country organized in the sense that the people from, from Nuba might capture some of the wealth creation that would be inevitable? Yes. Um, so Nuba is kind of the, one of the only places in Sudan. There's a few, but it's one of the only places in Sudan that there is uh, agriculture or things that the country needs. Sudan imports so much food, but because of the war, they're not able to get that food from Nuba. Do the people own their land privately? Uh, do they, are they able to own the crops on their land? Yes. So, yes. so uh, one of the, the points in the peace deal is ownership of land. And so the tribes or the people will actually own um, their land and they will have the ability to farm it, sell it. Um, There's natural resources in Sudan um, that is used kind of globally. Um, The the big baobab tree, like if you see a picture of Africa, like the big wide base tree with the, like the the branches that almost look like roots. Uh, They have a fruit that's very popular in other parts of Africa, but also the Middle East um, that's they could sell. Um, but there's so many, there's a lot of resources in Nuba and it is one of the most fertile areas in Sudan right now, um, to be able to kind of feed the rest of, of the country. Who owns the land now? You said that, that if the peace deal goes through, they'll be able to own the land. Who current, is it the government that owns the land? Is it who owns? So pra- yeah. Practically speaking in the Nuba mountains, the people just kind of own it. You know, they farm it, they own it. There's no one really to tell them otherwise because they're fighting for their land. So where they control, which is a pretty big area, they control it. But in other parts of the country, originally the the government controlled the land um, and then people would own plots of it, but, or companies might own some. Uh, But most of the time, those companies are also owned by the government. Fascinating. Ryan, we've had a heavy episode here with Ryan. He's been incredible. I'm Indeed. wondering if we might lighten up with a little, uh, with the five. The, the Furious Five. So Ryan, one of our traditions on this podcast is to end with a segment that we like to call the Furious Five, which are five questions that mostly have nothing to do with anything we've talked about during the episode. They're mostly <laughs> just kind of fun, uh, you know, get to know you, lighthearted sort of questions. Although sometimes the last one can be a little bit of a heavy hitter, but I'll let okay. you discover that at the end. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, without any further ado, the first question of the Furious Five tonight is, what's the best meal you've eaten recently? Oh, man. I am Italian, and my wife actually cooks really good Italian food. Really? So we that's, just, that's awesome. Yeah. My mom is Italian, and they spent a lot of time together, and yeah, cooked a great Italian meal tonight, actually. I had no idea, and I'm fascinated by this because, you know, one thing that we didn't get the chance to talk about this episode is the fact that Sudanese coffee is the best <laughs> coffee in the entire world. I've and I know from personal experience that your wife, Jazira, makes incredible Sudanese coffee. I, I, I'm, I'm stunned to hear this about the Italian food. <laughs> yeah, Jazira's a very good cook. I'm very lucky. Nice. Um, I, I was joking with my son that, you know, I, I don't think you'll be as lucky as me to find such a beautiful wife and that can cook extremely well. And of course, all of us were laughing. Um, but she's a, she is a very good cook. I've been actually cooking lately because she's at school. And so I've been trying. I'm not as good a cook as her. 
Um, so I feel bad for her that she has to eat my food, but sometimes she helps me out. <laughs> but yes, as far as the Sudanese coffee goes, I mean, it's, it's such a treat. Yeah, it's such a treat. I have uh, on many occasions had four or five Sudanese coffees all at once, which is inadvisable from a health perspective, but it's simply <laughs> irresistible from a taste perspective. Yeah, it's about half sugar, half coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's absolutely accurate. Question number two of the Furious Five tonight, Ryan, is what's the best movie or TV show that you've watched recently? Oh, I have. Uh, so I kind of I don't really watch TV that much, but I kind of do it just to mellow down at the end of the day, just sure. to get all this like work out of my head. And so I'll like veg out on a show, but I've, I've recently seen the, the show called C. It's, uh, it's what I'm watching right now. It's on Apple TV. And I got like, the only reason I knew it is because I got like a month free subscription. And okay. so I've been watching it and it has, uh, uh, what's his name? Jason Momoa. Oh, sure. From uh, oh, Game of I've Thrones. seen yeah. that. Yeah, yes. It's tremendous. And it's like a community of all blind, like something happened in the, in the country or in the world. And this disease like killed most people and everyone else was blind. But then there's like two kids who are, are can see it, but it's like they're treated as outsiders. And like, they're going through this world that is like, yeah, it's very interesting. It's a kind of a cool, I thought it was a very original kind of idea. It's pretty cool. Fascinating. Great choice. Question number three of the Furious Five. What's your favorite book of all time? Ooh. Um, it's hard to say my favorite book of all time, but I'll say more recently, I have, and Ryan, you know this, I, I just graduated from Vanderbilt and we, in one class we read Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And I think it just, um, it, it just makes sense in Nuba. I mean, when you read it, it's like, like was Ferrari and Nuba when you read it? Like it, it kind of opened my eyes to like, this is not an uncommon thing. Like this is pretty, pretty common, obviously. Um, if he's writing about it and the situation in Nuba like describes it. So yeah, that's been, it's been a very, very thought provoking for me. There's some things I don't agree in, in the whole book, but I really like the thought and the process and, and really thinking through it. That's a tremendous answer. And uh, you bring up a point that we neglected to talk about, which is that all three of us here our Vanderbilt University Masters of Education graduates. So nice. go doors, anchor down, sure. all that good stuff. Um, Ryan, question number four of the Furious Five is, who's a thought leader that you admire that you think our listeners should stop what they're doing right now and either go follow on social media or watch a TED Talk by or check a book out from the library about? Who's a thought leader that everyone needs to be aware of right now? <laughs> The problem is my thought leader um, hasn't had access to the ability to write a lot of those things. I think um, uh, there's a man in Nuba named Abdulaziz mm. and he doesn't have social media and he's been living in the bush for, you know, his whole life, you know, and I think he's an incredible thinker. I think he has really tried to help his people in Nuba and in Sudan, and he's committed his life to that, but he's been very thoughtful about it. Um, Brian, can you say his name again? I think we had some audio challenges. Could you say his yeah, name? Yeah, his name is Abdulaziz. And uh, yeah, he's just a very wise man. Um, what is and, one of the most profound things that he shared or some of, the, some of his, his biggest, you know, a, a thesis that you might share with us who, who uh, won't be able to follow him on social. 
So he speaks all the time. Um, he speaks all the time, and I've heard many of his speeches, and most of the time how he speaks and tries to give a point is through story. And that's another thing I admire about him is because you can connect so well with his stories. Um, very quickly, there was a time in the war that he told me that a, the, the war was almost to be lost, and the, the Nuba people were ready to give up, and all the men came and had this big meeting, and then the, and then the women came and had their own meeting down the mountain. And so the men decided to give up. And so they came up and they stood and they said, yeah, we're going to give up. And the women said, okay, well, if you're going to give up, that's fine, but give us your guns and we're going to keep fighting for the freedom of our children. Um, and so it's, it's stories like that, that he has kind of, he, he instills into the people of this hope, this resilience. Um, uh, and, and I just think that his desire for democracy and equality um, I, I have not met, a lot of people talk about it, but I have not met someone who has done it in action. And I think his action um, speaks much louder than his words. And that's why he, he has influenced me so much. And he's just a patient leader. He's, uh, he's someone who shows action. He, he, he does what he says he's gonna do. Um, yeah. That might be uh, my favorite answer that I've ever gotten to that question. And, uh, uh, part of that, of course, is that, you know, I, I got to meet Abdulaziz briefly and, and can attest to what a tremendous person he is, like you're saying, Ryan. But, uh, man, somebody needs to get in there and write a biography of him while he's still around. Yeah, there's, there's also a, a man um, named Dr. John Garang who has passed away. He's the one who was the leader in South Sudan. You can look him up on YouTube, and he has some pretty amazing speeches. Um, just he, he's a very deep thinker as well, and he actually – got his doctorate from, I think, the University of Illinois. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. The final question of the Furious Five really belongs to Adam. And so at this point in the show, I always pass the mic back over to him to ask what we like to call the contrarian question. Adam? Ryan, uh, you know, we, I have to balance this Furious Five because we, we, we threw the pedagogy of the oppressed in. I know. I'm, make, I'm making it so serious. <laughs> I have to ask you, you know, what do you know to be true about the cowboy capitalism that we are seeing in Eastern Africa that, uh, you know, I've heard stories about, uh, you know, uh, riding around in, uh, in, in uh, you know, Toyota Land Cruisers and things. What do you know to be true about the cowboy capitalism in uh, Eastern Africa that, that other uh, folks who are aspiring to open businesses in Africa would disagree with you on? <laughs> that's a, that's a good, uh, good question. So, oh man, where to start on that one? I mean, there is so much, I mean, Africa is such a rich country and it has so much history of, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's very recent. I, you know, I think this cowboy capitalism has been going on for centuries. Right. Um, and so. Tremendous answer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they have been, uh, there is so much investment in Africa, especially in some of these cities like Nairobi and South Africa and, uh, and even in Khartoum, the capital of Sudan. Like you, you see floods of, because there's so much potential. There's, there's so many resources, so much potential, labor is cheap. And so I think that, um, and there's a lot of, um, you know, under the table deals that go on and that can kind of happen fairly easily. Um, and I think that it's very, uh, it's sad because a lot of the, the people that suffer from those deals or 
don't ever see the results of those deals are the average person. Um, you know, the, the average person that's trying to wake up super early and just get by it with a job or look for a job or, or, or trying to do some hustle just to get by. Um, and, and they don't see like, there's tons of money in Africa. I mean, you, you, you see guys driving around in Hummers and, and decked out land cruises, like you said. And, um, and it's like, okay, how, how did that happen? Uh, it, there's such a separation of, of wealth and, you know, there is a growing middle class, like, you know, we've spent a lot of time in Nairobi and Kampala and there is a growing middle class. Um, but for the most part, the wealth is really separated amongst international capitalists and, and the people who work for extremely low amounts of money for them. Great. And it has been such a pleasure to talk to you this evening. Uh, it's a privilege as always. Um, where can our listeners find you and or to move mountains on social media to follow? Okay. Thanks. Uh, thanks for asking that. Um, it, it's Instagram is at to move MTNS. That's T O M O V E M T N S. And then we have Facebook. You just look up to move mountains projects. The full name of the organization is to move mountains projects. Um, go to our website to move mountains.org. Um, they can find uh, me on Twitter, Ryan Boyette as well. And yeah, my name on just any of those social media as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, my friend. We look forward to talking to you again soon. I hope. Hey, we I really appreciate it guys. Thanks so much for having me on today. Our pleasure. Thank you, Ryan. Take care. Bye now. Bye-bye.